What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. On this episode of Wedgecast, I'm hanging out with Carl Schmidt. So per request from a lot of listeners on the show, a few people asked for a longer episode. Well, this is it. You got it. And this is the perfect guy to do it with. For We recorded for about two and a half, almost three hours, and Carl just absolutely lights it up. From being kicked out of the military, going back into the military, to randomly moving to find his wife, all of a sudden to... <clears throat> Jumping out to California to enter into wine country. His story is just insane. Carl Schmidt's currently an executive at SAP, but he's a lot more than just that. He is hilarious. He's brilliant. And he also kind of has a PhD in psychology. So we dive into maybe him asking me a couple questions during both episodes of this. We broke it up into two. So take a look. The next episode will be posted a few days as well, too. Thanks for listening. All right. Let's let's hit it. Hey, Carl, thanks, uh, thanks a ton for being a guest on the show. So happy to be here, Matt. Been looking forward to it all week. <laughs> so, Carl, uh, we originally got introduced uh, to, I think it was originally from Steve Griffin. And it's funny because when he first made the introduction, him and I were at much more of a professional always meet in the office. And since then it's like over beers, it's talking about food. It's talking like just become like good buddies. And since then I feel like we've kind of reached that point too. And realizing like two pretty, pretty, 
I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I push the things, but anyway. So yeah. it's been it's it's been a blast to see some two uh, high flying business guys also have like amazing lives and do some really cool stuff. So long story short, stoked to have you on the show. Oh man, I'm I'm almost afraid with that kind of an introduction that I'm either going to be like George Costanza. I should just go right now. I, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, so Carl, uh, give us your background, man. What's uh, where did it where did it start, and what was in between, and kind of where you're at now? How much time do I have? Okay. As long as you so, need, as long as as long as we both got something to sip on while we're going. <laughs> uh, check and check. So, it, you know, it's funny. I was just sharing the story um, with one of the interns at SAP. Um, you know, just looking for a, a roadmap. Um, and so uh, after high school, I was accepted to a military academy, and it was such a sweet deal. I didn't really stop to think about the implications of me at going to an engineering academy. Um, <laughs> so I did love to sail. So sailing was awesome. It was the Coast Guard Academy. So the sailing was awesome. The failing was <laughs> to be expected. So 18 months later, I was politely asked to leave the Coast Guard Academy. Um, so my game plan was to hang out with my sister at an all-woman's college. And my mom thought that was a really not cool idea. So, <laughs> so from, just, uh, from, getting, from getting kicked out to potentially getting kicked out again. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and it was 30 miles from my home. So my mom was like seeing herself as being this kind of you know, crash pad slash bordello, and she wasn't having any of it. So, you know, hats off to my mom, God rest her soul. She took me to a recruiter, which was the same building our dentist was in. And so I thought I was going to the dentist, and she takes me to the Air Force recruiter. And this, this, that like, building is just got to have like a black cloud over it or something. I don't know. <laughs> it was so, I mean, at the moment, I thought it sucked. But in hindsight, it was like the master chess move. Because what am I going to do? You know, she drove, and she was gone. So I sat down with the recruiter, and I didn't really want to be there. I still didn't feel high about the military after getting kicked out. And I said, uh, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I have no idea. And he goes, oh, I didn't know recruiters love that when you say, I don't know. Because then he said, I got just a job for you, which should have been a huge red flag. So I'm like, great, sign me up, go to boot camp, get out of boot camp, go to tech school. I'm in Biloxi. And it's the school where all the personnel folks are trained, 732. And uh, <laughs> what I didn't know was I wasn't going to be personnel. There's a sub-subcategory of personnel that are the people that knock on the door when somebody's passed away. That was my job. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I was, I was kind of wondering, like, you've got the perfect job. or uh, The recruiter has the perfect job for you. You have no idea what you're doing. You sign up right away. So I'm kind of wondering, the other group of people who were equally said yes, what was the demographic of people you were, like, your, your colleagues at that point? They were really um, people that didn't want to do – people that were really into the, the bureaucratic – office but back then hr was just transactional i mean it was personnel and so people that were just draw, drawn to the the order and the structure and then you you know you're in the military on top of order and structure so um it ended up being people that really were into personnel kind of like the pre-precursors of hr so it was kind of an eye-opening experience to find out that that wasn't me 
I was going to be the guy that knocked on the door to say, I regret to inform you, which is kind of a kind of a head game when you're 20 and the concept of mortality, you know, is like in the movie. <laughs> Love that. So, oh man. So there I was. Um, oh, and so the point was that job actually turned out to be one of those transformative experiences that I totally didn't see coming because, okay, so, you, you know, this, remember this is 1983. You got this giant brick of a beeper with a quarter mile range. And so when you're on call and that thing goes off, it's the commanding officer, the chaplain, medical officer, and me. And so, yeah, it's brutal that, that knock on the door. But then I would go back afterwards for the paperwork and afterwards for the paperwork and afterwards for the paperwork, building a relationship that, unbeknownst to you know, my 20-year-old unfinished brain, was the foundation of a therapeutic healing relationship. All I knew was it felt good. It felt good to help these people you know, get their flag, get their plot, get their benefits, you know, navigate that, that labyrinth and it felt good. And so I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Okay. Put it in a box, filed it away. Ronnie Reagan was in office, shitloads of money coming for the defense department. Uh, anybody wants to get their bachelor's degree can become a commissioned officer. I raised my hand, got a poli sci BA from UNH, go Wildcats. And then I thought poli sci for sure. I'll be an Intel officer. Uh, no, actually, I was going to be an air weapons control officer. So short answer to that is the AWACS plane, there's all versions of AWACS. Right? You got AWACS in the back of a pickup truck. You got AWACS uh, in a giant NORAD building. That concept of playing chess with air weapons was the job. Awesome, awesome, awesome job. I mean, come on. You're playing the ultimate like, like computer game. Granted, it was driven by punch cards. But still, you know, for the time, it was pretty cool. How big, how big was your staff like on that, on that team? Was this like you were pretty single-handedly able to make most of the decisions or was this a pretty involved? <laughs> so at that time, I was the first lieutenant. Uh, no, second, well, second lieutenant. So the training was, was a year. And then I was basically a first lieutenant when I started the job. Oh, no, we had, there was all kinds of levels of supervision because, you know, pre predominantly, I was stationed in Panama City, Florida, so predominantly our mission was NORAD, which is basically watching out for the Russians. So, you know, with Cuba right down there in Florida, so typically it would be anything that was going to penetrate the perimeter, then we'd scramble. And so, yeah, as a first lieutenant, I would be controlling the intercepts, but looking over my shoulder, Garen Dampede was, you know, the, my boss, the captain, and then his boss, the major, her boss, the lieutenant colonel. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was fun though. It was totally fun. I was <laughs> That's young, amazing. And oh yeah, it was the. I mean, it was just cool as shit for sure. Um, but then it morphed into the war on drugs, and that became a lot less fun. Uh, it, it just, it showed me the. It, it just showed me how unfair that approach was so we would be in countries in south america eradicating coca plants and you know the farmers weren't the problem it was their bosses that were the problems but eradicating the coca plants simply meant that they were going to go somewhere else in the amazon which by the way is pretty freaking huge and so we would just do this repeated bullshit always blaming the supplier never addressing the demand you know beyond nancy reagan saying just say no and so there i was kind of engaged in this kind of amoral at best uh, engagement 
You know, us flying around in piece of shit aircraft and host nations that was held together with duct tape. And I'm like, man, is this the way I, I mean, is this the way I want to go out? So um, I got a position in Atlanta, Georgia headquarters, military personnel management officer, which really means that um, the military members of the Air National Guard in Georgia, um, I was their paper pusher. I was their transactionalist. Um, but it was a good job. It was a good job because, you know, our state was the responsibility. My boss was awesome. She was lieutenant colonel. Um, and, you know, we had a little sweet uh, jet. It wasn't a jet. It was a, like a turboprop, twin turboprop that we could fly around the state in. So, I mean, that's amazing. It was great. <laughs> that's so oh, cool. I know, right? <laughs> the staff was awesome. The, I mean, my supervisors were awesome. I still remember the generals um, that were in charge of the Georgia Air National Guard. Everybody was great. Um, and so then I had a friend who could get me into civilian HR. Um, and so I went into the reserves, went to civilian HR, moved from Atlanta to Chicago, and worked at Tenneco uh, as a team developer. Um, you know, that was my first kind of eye-opening welcome to the world of manufacturing and HR. Did um, uh, Were you, like, so civilian HR, was this on, like, at what point did you start having the thought that that might be the path that you're going down? Um. I realized that I missed the operational side of being in the Air Force, you know, to go from as much as I didn't like the actual mission that we were engaged in, um, I missed the operational pace and being in, you know, support, which is what my personnel position was. Um, it, you know, if I'm going to wear a uniform and have people shooting at me, I might as well have people shooting at me. And, you know, I just felt like, well, sitting behind a desk, uh, I'd like to try the other side of the fence. So, right, right. Just, you know, and at the time, I mean, you know, packed up my pickup, threw my dog in it, and uh, drove from Georgia to Chicago in my big, giant, lifted K2500 Chevy Silverado. And boy, did I not fit into Chicago with that beast. We have uh, we have not talked about cars yet, and at some point, that's going <laughs> to need to be a dialogue. <laughs> be careful, or you're going to help me fix my '54 MGTS in the garage. I have what? I have uh, my background is in lawn care, and so my whole world revolved around how big and how lifted can you get it uh, to then be now converted to fuel efficient as a traveling salesman and it sucks <laughs> i've seen so, some pretty sweet prius lift kits man you just got to do research oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you've got you've got a big you've got a big lifted truck in downtown chicago and you're just you're a military guy stepping into the big the big outside world i mean what what happens next <laughs> so the the piece of the backstory is um the woman I had met when I was 20 and she was 19 at that woman's college, my sister's best friend, um, you know, I, we had dated, <laughs> um, she likes to stay for two weeks, but then I went in the military. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. So you were being responsible. Married, I don't know why I don't know I was, why she's exactly, mad about that. <laughs> exactly. I had to, I had to get all of my immaturity out of my system. So, um, she was in Chicago single and, I said, hey, <laughs> what's up? Um, 
And so this was a course. This was a course by like by like text or Instagram message or something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was this brand new thing. It was 1995, and I had gotten her email address. She was in banking. And this email thing was really useful. I mean, I'm serious. I had a Windows 95 IBM laptop thing. I mean, it weighed like nine pounds, but the email was awesome because it was like real time, letters, real time. It was just mind blowing. Man, I sound like a dinosaur. So um, <laughs> long story short, I show up with my giant pickup truck and um, we move in together and get married two months later. And that was 1996. She stayed in banking downtown Chicago, and I was HR uh, at different manufacturing facilities in the greater Chicago area. That's a good wow. place for a pause, time for the audience to get a drink or a vomit bag and get comfortable. <laughs> Love that. We're about to we're about to strap in. So we, I want to I want to touch back on a little bit of the the story leading up to that. So at this point, knowing what you know now, what was like your life demeanor throughout all this so you have like a pretty uh sounds like unfocused childhood getting kicked out of a couple different things right and then you get into like the most rigid arguably systematic approach in the world being the military and then all of a sudden you've gained some pretty cool amazing freaking awesome experiences through all that are you like what is your demeanor? And this is like a very psychology related question, but what's your demeanor throughout all this? Are you like high on life? Are you depressed? Are you like, what level of like, I, I guess you're all, you're all... Yeah, I, I would say, um, holy shit. I am so proud of you, Matt, right now. <laughs> you snatched the pebble from my hand, grasshopper. <laughs> I would say that my demeanor was, was, child's mind and and i truly so third grade um at the end of third grade every teacher wrote a quick little thing about each student and i will never forget what she wrote about me mrs Burgett said like pan he marches to the beat of his own drummer my mom was a teacher at that school and so i never ever forgot that and I never really understood why I remembered it. Like of, of of the billion bytes of data my our brains are inundated with, why did my brain hang on to that? That I can still see it on that school yellow piece of thicker than average paper. And and I'm like, why did my brain hang on to that? Like there's some secret Rosetta Stone code in there that's going to help me later in life. Well, sure as shit. That has become one of the core philosophies of who I am. So when I say child's mind, I truly, truly have enjoyed going through life with the mind of a child, meaning everything is, is something that I can learn from. Now, that is said with amazing aplomb as a person who's 57 looking back in the moment. To answer your question specifically, it was gratitude for sure. Because <laughs> this sounds terrible, but at the point, it was gratitude that I wasn't in the military because I was so free. 
you know, I, I mean, kind of cliched, but the first thing I did in Chicago was grow my hair and I didn't stop until it was down to my, my waistline. So I mean, love that. Just, <laughs> uh, please, please for like the audience show notes, we might need a picture of that just to, <laughs> just to throw that or where we, uh, we, we post the podcast to like Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. I feel like that's going to be the subject headline of you, you with your long hair all the way down. <laughs> no, you can go on HGTV and see it. They did a, when we rehabbed our house, they recorded it. It's on some 2004 episode of HGTV and my hair was uh, flying my freak, freak, freak flag, as they said. Anyway, anyway, it's not about my hair. So um, that process of, of being free, when you asked where my head was at at that point, man, I was so grateful. Grateful to be with, you know, this woman that I had met 13, 14, 13 years ago before then, um, living in Chicago, we had, we were living with a band in this giant house. Um, um, this woman agreed to marry me <laughs> and live, and live with a band. And I brought my dog. She had brought her dog. They had their own dog. None of them got along together. So there were giant dog cages everywhere. God help you through the last one in the shower. Cause you're knee deep in everybody else's freaking dead skin cells. I mean, and this woman said, yes. <laughs> She she is a woman to run the river with. Like I, I've never I've never I have never met her, but I could just tell she is a lifer for sure. So of course, you know when it had to happen, we eloped straight to New Orleans. Like man, don't get this one off the hook. So anyway, anyway, my man, my mindset was one of gratitude and one of humility because truly I had stumbled into this amazing life at that point with with just walking around with a completely open mind. I can't say there is a causal relationship, but it's an interesting possibility that there's a correlation between approaching life with an open mind and stumbling into an amazing life. Uh, I don't know. Future research is needed. I guess so. I guess that's where my next degree is headed. So thanks for, uh, thanks for the <laughs> idea. And when I make my millions, I might send you a care package. <laughs> <laughs> you know where to find me. Exactly. Exactly. So you step into this. I mean, is career a focus for you at this point? Is it uh, you met the love of your life and you're focused on that? Is it you're just, you know, ready to take on the next thing that comes your way? I mean, do you, do you, have you identified like that, you know, whatever thing or whatever excitement you're going to pursue from oh. here? So from a career angle, um, the position at Tenneco as the team developer we made polystyrene. So, so the clamshells, the styrofoam clamshells you get for your leftovers at a Chinese restaurant, right? So we made those. Um, no, I don't have a was... bunch of those in my, my refrigerator. Why'd you ask? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can tell you how it's made. I can tell you exactly how it goes from peanut butter to extruded to punched out. Anyway. And that's exactly um, why I'm never going to get Chinese again. So moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. It was a lot about the R and not enough about the H. And I didn't know how to articulate at the time. So I acted badly, didn't really, I wasn't engaged, and I got fired. So 18 months out of the military, and I'm fired from my first job. Um, you know, and I'm newly married. <laughs> we had wisely just bought a house. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> sweet. Up to bat, and that's adventures. Uh, so that was in August of 97 for the next seven months, 
I listened to Howard Stern. Um, I dicked around with my <laughs> my computer trying to. I thought maybe I would learn how to build computers, um, and I looked for jobs. And all I had was I I kind of know HR, but it's mostly military. I mean, I was so out of touch that I would attach a picture of myself to resumes when I would mail them at the post office. I mean, holy crap. Thankfully, some woman, some woman recruiter actually called me and said, uh, I see you're just out of the military. Let me help you out here. And <laughs> you poor, was... poor soul. We, <laughs> like, just so, just so you don't become another statistic. Let me help you out here. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I was putting pictures in the envelope with my folded resume in these giant cover letters. Like, holy crap! If you transcribed this podcast, that would be like a cover letter. So, at the end of the day. I was not sure if I was going to make this civilian HR thing work. And as if to confirm that, the universe gave me an opportunity at a different manufacturing facility that then lasted eight months. Um, so now we're yeah, basically... Yeah, ten, your tenure is phenomenal. So, wait... <laughs> right. so it's, my next job's going to last four months, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to be under Wacker Drive. So then I was thinking, okay, I went to a temp agency. I said, I just need some money because that mortgage isn't going to get paid by itself. And I got a job as a temp, and I got to learn how the company worked, and they hired me. And long story short, I was then able to leverage that into a position as retained search VP for a boutique recruiting agency in Chicago. Oh, thank God. That was a close call, man. Because then from there, I realized that I really liked the H piece and not the R piece. And my wife said, well, why don't you get a master's in something besides an MBA? I did. Master's in clinical psych. I said, oh, yeah, I like this. Let's go for the doctorate. I, I probably should have told her it was another six years. But long story short, got the doctorate and... Um, yeah, went into private practice with a few other doctors downtown Chicago, treating primarily LGBTQ, and it was awesome. It was totally awesome. Two thousand and eight. So oh, go ahead. Dive, uh, well, no, yeah, I was I was about to say. So the six years you were getting your doctor, what were you doing during that period of time? <laughs> it, it, I was discovering the true secret of life, and you want to know what that is, Matt. The true secret of life is, gentlemen, we have been drinking the Kool-Aid, and it's not to our advantage. The most awesome – because at the time, Martha was now a, a senior in the banking world, right? So she was making she – was, she was doing very well. I was home. I built a pergola. I laid a patio. I worked on every project I ever wanted to do. I got to write papers. I got to study psychology. I mean – the secret is, gentlemen, we are tools. If women run the world and we get to just do very specific tasks, focused tasks, holy crap, Matt, it was the best six years. Awesome. Went to the gym, <laughs> got to work out, take care of the house, manage the money. And because, you know, Martha's doing the, the, the awful soul sucking work of being a banker in Chicago. Dude. It was eye-opening. So I just don't it know awesome. why why the hell you ever transitioned out of that. 
Uh, because the universe decided to step in and uh, the whole world imploded in 2009. And the funny thing was, Martha would come home from conferences. Um, she did large commercial real estate. She would come home from conferences and she would say, some of the economists that are coming in from the government are warning us about some of these CDOs, these things, things that the market's doing that, that, that have a, a quick return, but a long-term pain point, and it's come and due. But we're still doing business like normal. I'm like, huh, what are you going to do? Little did I know that a year later, it all ended. The whole thing. Pick any movie you want to watch by Michael Lewis, and it's, it was ended. So um, I had just gotten my doctorate, and Martha was now out of banking. And she said, I said, we said, what are we going to do? said, I want to be a sommelier. So, luckily, in Chicago, there's the Wine WSET, WSET. It stands for the Wine Sommelier Education Training, make up your acronym. So she did that. Um, and then, at that point, you had to go to the next stage of the SOM training, which was like either Napa or Italy. So we chose Napa. And I left the practice. And here's the crazy part of the universe. One of my friends from grad school had gotten into, he never wanted to be a clinician, and he had gotten into the business applications for psychology. This thing called success factors was taken off, and I just stumbled into being at the right place at the right time where Brian was starting a company, and I somehow was, the, 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 the programming at success factors was so awesome that even I could learn how to program it. And boom, there I was, living in California, now in the HCM world, programming software. I mean, when I say programming, I mean, <laughs> come on, it's not real programming. But anyway, it was like this ridiculous 180, and yet it all worked out. So I, I just think, man, if you're not grateful and humble, you're an asshole. So I try to be grateful <laughs> and humble. I love that. So, okay. <laughs> so at this point, you are background in military, uh, touched into human resources, got a PhD in psychology. You've got a wife who you're madly in love with, who's a banker, who, because of economy stuff, got out of banking, steps into wine. And at this point, do you guys realize like you as a couple are like the most interesting couple in the world? Like, At what point did that set it? I don't. I, I don't think anyone's ever said that in my entire life. <laughs> Sorry, that was hysterical. Oh my god, you are the most interesting man. <laughs> uh, because no, no, the at this point, like the background, the experience, the stories, and just like the like, yeah, let's just move to Napa to go pursue wine. Is that like approached all wrapped up in one is like not normal. I will grant you that. I will grant you that this is probably at least a standard deviation on the curve. I totally get that. And that's so we're probably going to get there eventually. But that's when you, when you why do I get up in the morning? That's why I get up in the morning. This experience, this experience for me should not be just for me. There has to be a way. 
to bring this experience to other people. And I don't mean, and not everybody wants to be in Northern California in HCM, not at all. But the, but the way it, it resonates with your soul, everybody as a human is entitled to this experience. And how I bring this, how I find a way to bring this, to, to, to replicate this, that's why I get up in the morning. I figured that was a good time to get there, Matt, because you were going to get there anyway, and it just <laughs> front and center on my brain. We we hit it hard. We hit it hard. I love it, and we're, we'll 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 explore. We'll dive in deeper to that. But like that's what's so I guess like we've gotten to know each other through various phone calls and us chatting business and stuff like that. But like listening to this story, this is like an amazing amazing story. Like I I a I hope you know that. Secondly, like this is exactly what this podcast is for. You know what sucks is I am dying to ask you questions. <laughs> but I realized that that's what I would have my own blog for. So <laughs> it, it's so it's so ingrained to be like, holy shit, Carl, you've been talking about yourself like you're the worst psychologist ever. And then I have to remind myself that 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 you have grasshoppered Master Poe here into getting on the couch, and that is impressive. It's the best thing in the world to. I, so I think I've come full circle. You kind of go through different bell curves. And I, I think early on, I might have I might have seen the light. A lot of people like to talk about themselves, which there's no 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 issues in that. When people <laughs> ask you questions, it's flattering. It's, it's great. Like nothing wrong with that. But then you reach a point where it's like way more fun to ask the questions and not have to answer anything. And it's, it's like the best thing in the world. <laughs> so I can recommend now, the Adler school in Chicago. <laughs> well, I was about to say, now that I know what psychology is to a very, very small degree, I feel like, man, you guys have got life figured out. <laughs> you get to ask the tough questions without them coming back. Right. <laughs> right. And then you get to learn every single person that ever came in my office. I have learned from, and I posit, I walk away for sure changed by having met that person. But my, my position is changed for the better. There isn't one person I worked with in the years I was in private practice that I truly didn't see another facet, like the dark side of the moon. It's just, you know, it, it, it was, people are so freaking amazing. So that's how when you say this is an amazing story, I'm like, I, I would think life is amazing and people have amazing stories. And how do we, how do we, how do we remove the, the, the chatter and the, the, the chaff in their radar screen so they can really see the stuff that's important? Rhetorical talks amongst yourselves. Dude, I mean, I, I, I got to hit that on. That's like, if I could sum up everything Okay, fine. Uh, you didn't ask it, but I'll I'll offer it. Like if I could, yeah. Of course, the ego's got to come into play at some point, right? <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think if I could sum up everything that I would like to do throughout the course of my career, it's to like push what you just what you just said. It's like there are sort of like the world looks at those that have and those that have not, and they worship those that have, and then they despise those have not. But yet, like if you you recognize like you listen to a story like yours and you hear you tell the story. It's like, wait a minute, I could do that. I could go experience that. And that's like what I hope one through the podcast, through the business and just in so many different ways, like that's literally to a T I hope to like push one person to a closer point of like, 
living a life that way because it's a good place to be on this side of things. Totally. And that's the only thing you can ask is that did you, did you nudge the needle a little bit in the positive direction? Not a lot. It's not a quantity game. It's a quality game. Did you nudge it a little bit for all of us? And that's it, right? And if it's one person, then you nudged it. The world is that much incrementally for sure, but it's, it's, it's more positive for you having been there, you know? And that's it. That's all I can ask for. That's all I can ask of myself is to, to not be a detriment, to not, you are the weakest link. That, I don't want to <laughs> be that guy. So let's let's go there for a second. Now that we're on that point, so you you sit in the seat of a of a psychologist. So, um, what did you learn about people in a positive way, and maybe what did you learn about people in like a tough way? Like, are we allowed to ask hard questions here? I would hope so. <laughs> okay, good. So, like, what 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 made you see the the world and people in a better place, and what made you see the world and people in a worse place? Um, wow, 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 good one. Um, so in the world in a better place, there are people who work at the VA who who do such amazing work. And, I, and I'm thinking, um, so I had uh, a one-year rotation at the VA hospital in Chicago. And there were psychologists there that are doing this amazing work. And I'm sure they write papers, you know, and but they're doing it for no other reason except it's the right damn thing to do. You know, I mean, they're working with veterans, and in particular, my two supervisors. I mean, these guys were doing, one was a partial inpatient rehabilitation program. And so you're working with, with guys and gals that kind of need to be inpatient, but kind of don't. And, you know, you're not getting paid a ton if you're a psychologist at the VA. It's good money for sure, but you're not, you're not killing it. And that's not why you're there anyway, because they were, doing, they were doing the right thing. So that was definitely, that was definitely in the positive. I would say the people I met in the military – you're not getting paid to be there, <laughs> clearly. But <laughs> so you're doing a thing for other reasons, and that's aspirational, and it speaks and reflects on the capacity of humans to surprise you in a good way, which is an easy segue into what surprises you, you by humans in a negative way. Um, I I don't... <laughs> I don't have to look much farther than um, the current political landscape to just to just just be sad. I I just something there is there is a rift in the moral fabric of our universe that we are watching some horrific shit spill out from behind it. Um, and I don't know. You know what it's like? It's like the goddamn, um, oh, shit, what was the, the oil pump in the Gulf that blew up? This is what is happening on our political landscape. It's like watching that thing and nobody knew how to stop it. 
And that's what I feel like is happening. That shit sludge is getting everywhere and we can't, we, it's like overwhelming the capacity of a system designed 250 years ago. Maybe 350 million people exceeds the limits of, of how that system is designed. You know what we need, Matt? We need democracy 2.0. We need to leverage technology so that democracy, it needs to be more representational. And I, I think we're like in a car that we've left in first gear too long and the engine's at 6,000 RPMs and Jesus Christ, will somebody put the clutch in and change gears, you know? Uh, it's a hard one. Yeah, it's a tough one. I love it. It's good. So, um, when you dive into patient care, and you know, we've joked about this is uh, I'm on the I'm on the psychology side, and you're on the patient side right now, right? So, you as a psychologist, how much does that emotionally toll you? throughout the course, whether it's on the actual practical business side or actually as a, you know, care provider or, you know, <laughs> sitting across from people, how, how much is that, how much is that told on you and how to, you know, walk me through that process? You know, that's a, geez, Matt, it's almost like you've done this before. So the issue of boundaries, um, I think anybody who's ever worked with me as a clinician would say, you know, boundaries aren't my forte. They are, <laughs> permeable at best um, because I, I I think it's such a sacred relationship that you need you need to be there and it's 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 nuanced it's great there is no black and white for this right yes rigid boundaries will protect both parties uh, to what cost right yes the first rule is do no harm but do no harm doesn't mean do no good just to do no harm. And so it, it, it was, it, it did take a toll. For sure, it did take a toll. We worked LGBTQ and we partnered with a research facility uh, that was working on HIV AIDS uh, drug treatment regimens. And so, you know, we would get newly diagnosed patients. And, you know, our first obligation was to assess them for uh, harm to self. But then to also then begin a therapeutic relationship and dialogue with them to kind of understand how how are they going to approach treatment? Um, you know, are they just going to say, shit, it's all over. You know, I'm, I've tested positive. Might as well just go out with a bang. Or are they going to embrace the opportunity to participate in a research project and, you know, really be a, a participant in it? Uh, so it was draining. It was draining at the end of the day, but at the same time, it was, you just knew you were doing the right thing and it was its own reward in that process. So, um, you know what? I haven't, I haven't, I'm trying to think of the last place that this was similar to, and it was in Catholic school when I had to go to confession in eighth grade because you had to go to confession every